Jump in. Uh, I thought very briefly about trimming my beard before I got up here just to look more presentable for you. Um, but then I realized that Derek would be disappointed in me. Uh, and so I have to represent for the bearded folk out there. Um, Derek, if you don't know Derek, um, he's, sit he's sitting back here. He leads a microchurch called Beer and Bible. And we've talked about it before up here, uh, but the story of Beer and Bible is really interesting. Derek and I used to play softball together back in college. And there was a mutual friend of ours that was on the team. He wasn't very good, but he posed a lot of good ideas. Um, he told us, why don't we, let's not waste our time playing softball. Let's try to do something more of this. Maybe we can have some Bible study or try to engage the non-Christians on our team. So we started something that we called Ball and Bible. I still have the t-shirt. I wear it quite frequently. So we started something called Ball and Bible. We just said, hey, after the games, we're going to go to the bar. Uh, there'll be beer there. There'll be Bible. You don't have to like beer. You don't have to like the Bible, but they're both going to be there. Come on out. And we gave it a shot. And we saw one person come to faith doing that. And Derek decided, man, this could be a thing. And so Derek took that idea to the next level. And he started engaging in relationships with local bars and figuring, can I get to a place where we can start having free Bible discussions within this, almost sanctioned by the bar itself? And so he started doing that. And that was really successful for a long time. And Derek took it to another level. He said, man, I want to not just engage this place, but I want to incarnate fully. And so one of the bars that he was at, he decided that he was going to start, he had a great relationship with the owner, he was going to start a coffee shop. Now, many of you know that coffee shop, it's called Ginger Beard Coffee. Uh, and I, I think he gives some free coffee to us every once in a while, so we're graced by the presence of their coffee from time to time. Um, but he started this coffee shop in this bar not just for a business, but so that he could build relationship, continue to be a part of that community fully. At, in time, he realized that there were so many people that he had relationship with, but not everyone went to beer and Bible. Not everyone showed up. And he was trying to figure out what are ways that we can engage this people, engage the people that I love, that I know, that I care about, in deeper ways outside of just what we know. And so him and I came up with an idea, and we just called it Whiskey Club. We called it, it was just a club where guys got together, they shared something that they liked, and more importantly, there was a space that people could engage in conversation. We got the idea from Hugh Halter, took it, tried to figure it out for ourselves. So we started engaging with guys, building real relationship, deep relationship, and we've had a lot of fruit building good relationship with these guys over the past year or so. Uh, back in December, we had a meeting where uh, we were all sitting around. It was kind of our Christmas gathering. And we get into this dialogue where one of the, uh, most, uh, most of the guys aren't Christian. And there's one that's more staunchly atheistic than the others. And we start getting into this intellectual dialogue. Now, this is my bread and butter. I've been in ministry for a long time. And I, I, I was proud, at least when I was on campus, of my way, my ability to engage in an intellectual dialogue and an apologetic dialogue with a person. So that, that conversation started. I'm like, I'm in. I'm ready to go. And so we, we start going back and forth. I, I gave an idea. Well, what about this? And it was like, oh, that's an interesting idea. But have you thought about this? And he gives an idea. And Derek, meanwhile, is sitting right next to us on the couch. And he's just laughing. And he's cracking jokes the whole time. He's like, y'all are crazy. You and your smart ideas. And I'd be like, okay, Derek, you obviously don't understand the weight of this important situation. This is a kingdom moment here where someone could potentially cross from death to life and you're cracking jokes. Be quiet and let me do my thing. 
thing. And so I give another idea, and he's like, yeah, that's interesting. And he gives another idea, and Derek's cracking more jokes. I'm like, you got to be kidding me here. Trying to do evangelism in the way I know how. Nothing came of that conversation. I felt good about it afterwards. I felt like, man, I really engaged this person. And I felt really good. But nothing came. A few weeks later, that same guy has a conversation with Derek. And he looks at Derek and he goes, God, God, man, you've got community, friendship, people who love you, people you love. You've got this Jesus thing. You've got purpose. You've got a business that's successful that you love that is more than just making money. You have a family. He starts listing out Derek's life. And then he's like, "I, I want that. And Derek engages in probably the most meaningful conversation with that guy that we've ever had. I tried to communicate with my words and my intellect. And Derek had success with his life. And so it had me thinking, what's the point? What's the point of 10 years of learning and growing in my apologetic intellectual acuity? To what end? I mean, does it even matter now? In like a a postmodern, post-Christian culture where experience and story matter more than ideas and truth and absolute truth, does it matter? In Acts 17, this passage is often used as a framework for apologetic conversation or debate or or a guide for apologetic uh, 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 or or a way to uh, contextualize in ministry, right? Meet people where they're at. A call to debate maybe more effectively, to the world around us, or, or a defense of your faith, the book to everyone in answer, those sorts of ideas that they point to this passage. And that very well may be true. But man, when you read 1 Corinthians 2, at the very beginning, it is really hard to settle so heavily on Acts 17 as an apologetic framework or a step-by-step guide to our conversations with non-Christians. I'm going to read this. He leaves Athens and goes right to Corinth. And in his reflection of that moment when he leaves and comes into Corinth, he says this, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you. I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power. So that your faith may not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. It's almost as if Paul has the same reaction to Athens as I had to that conversation with that dude. Something about Athens has Paul thinking twice about the way he engaged there. Man, I struggled with this because I wanted so badly to engage in the, just like Irby. I wanted so badly in this passage to engage in the beauty and mastery. And it is beautiful artistic how Paul engages the Athenian people. But instead, the Lord took me to a place in the passage that I actually needed to wrestle with the most. Paul's distress. I am struck by Paul's incessant desire to say something when he's bothered. I mean, listen, this dude is not even supposed to be here. He's only here by circumstance. He was pushed out of the previous city and he's told to wait. The dude could just wait. He doesn't have to engage in ministry. He can chill, but he doesn't. He doesn't. He's bothered by something and he acts. And, and at first I resonated with that, right? I'm, I, I know this is really hard to believe, most of you who know me, but I, I sometimes can be a little bit of a hothead. 
I know it's hard, you know, it, you know, whatever. Polonio's never witnessed it on the basketball court. No one's ever been in an argument with me. But sometimes I can get bothered by something and feel the, that incessant de- desire to say something. Uh, Jeremy Stevens and I used to work out at the YMCA together. We don't anymore because he's old. Um, and he keeps getting hurt. I'm just kidding. I love you, Jeremy, wherever you are. But he used to say, uh, you're not good for me. You're a mouth and I'm a hammer. Now, if you don't know Jeremy, he's a, he's, a, he's a bigger dude. He's got some muscle on him. And so when we used to work out, there used to be things that happened in our YMCA that bothered me so bad. Our Y doesn't quite live up to like the gym etiquette protocol. We've got a lot of like um, older people, elderly people who use the gym equipment. And there's certain rules in gyms that, you know, you, when, when you're working out, you have a machine until you're done and you don't interrupt someone else's workout. You don't cut in and take their machine, right? That's just common gym protocol. That, does, that is not true in my YMCA. If you're working out, if you walk to get water, that's your fault. Someone is going to take your machine and they'll sit there with zero weight and do a hundred reps of that thing. And there's no way you're going to get back on that machine. That would happen all the time. But there was one time in particular where this guy was, um, he was a personal trainer at the Y, super sweet dude, like wouldn't hurt a fly big bulky dude was doing his personal workout. He wasn't training anybody. And this one guy, he's like 65 years old. He kept following him. And every time he would step away to take his rest, he would step in and take his machine and he wouldn't give it up. And I was getting so annoyed, but I'm like, it's not my, it's not my fight. It's not my fight. I'm not going to say anything. But eventually Jeremy and I were doing dumbbell, dumbbell bench press. And we were on the bench and I stepped away for a minute. And this guy came over and sat down on my bench. And I, I could, I had to, I could, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't let it go. And I, I'm like, dude, what are you doing? It's like you, I'm in the middle, I'm standing right here. And we start getting into this, this dialogue, this debate about whether it was right for him to, I'm like, dude, I just watched you take this guy's machine over and over. And we're just like going at it. Then this dude steps up, he starts bowing up on me. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm about to get in a fight with a 65 year old dude in the middle of the YMCA. It's like, this is not okay. What is happening? And Jeremy over there, the whole time this is happening is in the middle of his set. He's got like these huge 85-pound dumbbells in each hand. And then all of a sudden, he drops the dumbbells. This is how it ends. He drops the dumbbells. He's all swollen. He stands up. He looks at the guy. He points in the other direction. He says, go. (laughs) And he went. And then like he often says, he looked at me and says, you're not good for me. You're a mouth and I'm a hammer. They don't go well together. There are lots of things I get bothered by and want to act. And I, I want to relate in that way to this passage, but that, it's not the same. Paul's distress is different. Something's different about what Paul does here. The way Paul gets distressed in this. It's not, it's not the same as those petty moments we have in our lives that we respond to. It's different. In um, 1999, there's a development organization called WaterAid. And they decided to engage in a project to construct latrines in northern Bangladesh. And the latrines were necessary. They felt they were necessary because uh, it was a cultural norm in these kind of remote villages uh, to defecate wherever. 
uh, just there were some common spaces, but if you had to go, you just you do your bit, you just squat, squat down, you go, you're good, you move on. Problem is, it was causing a lot of diseases. There was a lot of issues, cholera, a hookworm, a, and people were dying. And so they were trying to find a way to solve this problem. And so they started building latrines. And they felt good about themselves, and they walked away, and they came back and realized that nobody was using the latrines. So they embark in this huge project to spend all this money and find out that the villagers didn't actually use them. And so they started asking villagers, why don't you use the latrines? And they said, that's nicer than my house. Why would I go to the bathroom in that? Why would I use that? In fact, most of them, when pressed, felt like the latrines were a solution to a problem that they did not ask to be solved. So the researchers realized that they had been going about it wrong. The whole time. They had thought about the problem as a hardware problem. That if we just build more latrines, people will change. Diseases will reduce. And so they tried a different tactic. So what, what the researcher would do is he would go into a village. And he would start walking around the village. And he obviously looks different, so people would come up. Maybe some people recognized him from before, and they would follow him around, and he would start asking questions. Hey, where do you, where do you eat, or where do you do this, or what, what happens when your village does this? Where do you go? And they basically, he, he had them take him on a tour of the village. And eventually, he started asking more personal questions. Where does everyone, where does everyone defecate? Where does everyone expose or dispose of waste? And so they started pointing to places. Well, here, and sometimes here, and then there's, we do it over here, and we do it over here, and they started pointing. And then when there was enough people gathered around, uh, where he'd gathered enough of the villagers, what he would do is, in a big dirt circle, he would, he would draw the village in the ground. Uh, and he would ask the same questions, where do you eat, and where do you do these, and, and kind of get them comfortable to the map. And then he would ask, where do you point to where you defecate? Now, he brought bags of chalk, and the chalk, he would say, sprinkle that chalk on those places. And so they would start sprinkling chalk on places and the kids loved it. The kids on the common areas or common places where they went to the bathroom, they would sprinkle a ton of chalk and they were having a lot of fun with it. And then you would say, well, what are you doing in an emergency when it's, you know, there's a monsoon out or it's raining or something like that. And they were like, well, we have to go around our house. And they'd start sprinkling chalk around the houses. And then they took a step back when it was all said and done. And you can see the visible, visible discomfort in the villagers' faces as they realized there was chalk everywhere, that the whole village was covered in chalk. Uh, so you started to get this sense of discomfort. And then this guy, this researcher, pulled a hair out of his head. And he put that hair in some feces. Um, he would take it, and then he'd put it in a glass of water. So he'd ask them for a glass of water. Um, and he would first, before he did that, he'd ask, would you drink this water? And they would say, yeah, we'd absolutely drink that water. And then he put this kind of poop hair <laughs> into the water, and he'd mix it around. And then he would ask, would you drink this water? And they would say, absolutely not. They would become indignant. Why would we drink that? There's poop in that water. And then he looked at them and said, what's the difference between a fly's legs and this hair? And you can see the change in all of them when it's as if their eyes were opened for the first time, that for their whole lives, they had been eating each other's, eating and drinking each other's waste. It was a powerful moment for everyone in the village. And they always knew, they knew the truth that you should not eat another person's waste. But when they realized that that's exactly what they had been doing, that what they thought was true was not what was actually true, they had become distressed, changed, and it led them to action. You see, Paul is not unfamiliar with having his eyes opened. Paul, it 
on the road to Damascus, it was Jesus himself that blinded this man and then revealed himself to Paul. And it was all in a grand act of not just his own exposing Paul's own depravity, but reconciling Paul to God. Paul was made aware of his own folly, his error, and submission to a cause that only leads to death. And Jesus rescued him. He saved him. And Paul remembers that. He carries that with him always. It's that same Paul that we find walking around, touring the city, and seeing idol after idol, object of worship after object of worship, and he becomes distressed. Not distressed of the flesh like we go or I go, but distressed because people aren't, and not distressed because people aren't following a law, not distressed because uh, people aren't adhering to the rules and concepts of morality, the rules that govern what's right or wrong for Paul. This distress stems from something very, very deep. A connection to a time when he first realized that he was under the reign of death in his own life. When he was submitted to the idols of his zealous religiosity and fast-tracked towards separation from the very God he thought he served. This is the place Paul's mind goes. And he carries that with him always. Not just for himself, but for everyone else. And when he sees worship of idols, he doesn't see the sin of a people as much as a people tracked towards separation from the one who made them, who knows them, and who wants to be in relationship with them. And this distresses Paul. This distress is not his own, but it comes from God. This is a divine distress. And a divine distress should always be present in the people of God. A divine distress should always be present in the people of God. You see, people who have near-death experiences remember those experiences forever, and it changes them. I work for InterVarsity. I used to do local work here in Tampa, but I have recently, back in October, changed jobs. So I work for the national office. So I travel to Madison, Wisconsin, which, be glad you live in Florida. <laughs> so cold. So I travel quite frequently to Madison, Wisconsin, and when I'm there, uh, there's a couple pubs or like breweries that I really like, and uh, there was one time back in November when the Packers were still playing that I really wanted to go to this certain brewery when I was there, and sometimes I'll go by myself, and, and uh, there was a Packers game on, and so I was like, man, where better to watch a Packers game, which I don't particularly care about the Packers, but there's something electric about a Packers game in Wisconsin with like Packers fans, so I, went, I was like, I'll go, I'll go watch the game. So I go up there, I'm eating some, I don't know, chicken pot pie or something by myself at the bar, and there's this guy next to me, and I can't help myself, I just get into conversations with everybody, so I start talking to this guy, and we get into this dialogue. He's at, you know, what do you do? And he tells me he's in sales and he asks what I do. And I talk about InterVarsity. I talk about what we do with InterVarsity and how we're trying to reach college students. I talk about Intervar- what InterVarsity calls their 2030 calling, right? They're trying to get on 2,500 campuses uh, by the end of 2030. Very big goal, very big ambition, uh, uh, ambition. And I was telling what I do for the national office to try to see that come to fruition. And he was, I, I don't think it was anything magical. It's not like I, I expressed it Uh, in some grand way, but he was just really taken aback. He's like, man, that's awesome. I was like, can I give to that? Can I support that? It's not, uh, this was not a fundraising conversation. This was a dude at a bar, but I was just like, why would you want to support that? I just felt like I needed to ask a question. Like most people would be like, yes, let me give you the account number. And I I was just like, why? (laughs) Why would you want to do that? And he goes and tells me that the last year he almost died twice. That he's not a believer, 
He has never really followed Jesus, but uh, he had some issue with his kidney that left him in the hospital almost dead for uh, like four weeks. And then he got cancer right after that. He gets out of the hospital and gets cancer, uh, but then beats cancer. Um, and so he's sitting at this bar hearing me talk about the thing that I find purpose in. And he's like, I want purpose. This dude has a near-death experience, and it changes him forever. He realizes, he sees the world through the lens of that experience that he had. And his pursuit for finding something that matters, finding some kind of meaning in his life. The dude's experience has always led him to be unsettled with a life without purpose. Because people who have near-death experiences remember those experiences forever, and it changes them. You have had a near-death experience. We all have. Just like Paul. Paul was saved from the grip and reign of death itself. Just like us when we first met Jesus. Do you remember that? But for Paul, it causes him to incessantly act when there's a people separated from the one who made them. It leads to a divine distress. And it has to be divine because that kind of concern is rooted in love, love for another, longing and desire to see someone reconciled and restored to God. It's not rooted in self-service or annoyance or indignance. And so often our distress or definitely my distress is rooted in the ways that I felt wronged or the ways that people aren't adhering to my sense of what right and wrong is, or maybe they don't line up with my theology or my ethic. But the distress that we see here demonstrated in this passage isn't about self. It's about the other. That's why this distress has to be divine, because divine distress is rooted in love. Divine distress is rooted in love. So what do we distress over? What has your near-death experience opened your eyes to that you can never unsee? And guys, listen, I don't ask that question as somebody who's at the pinnacle of healthy divine distress levels. I don't. But as someone who wrestled deeply this week about the fact that I'm not so sure that I've been divinely distressed over anything for the past year and a half. Guys, I've been on 100% throttle for so long in ministry, for as long as I can remember. And I am so burnt out. I've been tired tired of leading, tired of engaging, tired of dealing with my problems, tired of dealing with other people's problems, tired of distressing. The thing that Jesus showed me this week and the beauty of Jesus is that he's constant and faithful throughout our distance. And in this season of my rest, my needed rest, the question still burns for me. What do I distress over? Do we distress over the things in this world that God distresses over? And not just when we have our ministry switch on, guys. Not just when in between the start and end times of our microchurches, but always. Like Paul, he's just supposed to wait. Do we see the world with the very eyes and heart of God? Do we have a divine distress? And more importantly, Do we do anything about it? Paul engages a people he does not know in a place he is unfamiliar with for love. His distress over their separation from God 
leads to action. The villagers in Bangladesh that I told you about, they not only made changes to their own village, but they felt the desire, the need, the incessant desire to tell other villages about it. They, it's like what they learned in that moment when their eyes were open caused them to be changed forever and act on that change. So how do we gain not just a divine distress like Paul in this city where he walks towards? He, the Jewish, common Jewish thought would be to walk away from idolatry. Paul walks towards it. How do we gain a divine distress, but not just gain a divine distress, but learn how to act? How do we respond to distress? This passage gives us a, a great window, I think, in how Paul chooses uh, to walk towards the idolatry of the Athenian people and act on his divine distress and their separation from God. But the danger in this passage is to try to use Paul's method as a step-by-step -step guide to engaging non-Christians. And the common outcome of that pursuit is to say, we need to learn philosophy. We need to get better at understanding atheism and agnosticism. We need to study more relevant apologetics. We need to be able to communicate the authenticity of scripture. We need to learn all the possible arguments that people might have and be ready for them. I mean, who feels overwhelmed by that prospect? Yes, most of us do. I mean, most of us barely have time to read any book, much less one on apologetics. And to fight through to do that would be hard. And don't get me wrong, we need these people. We need people who will engage deeply in the mind in profound ways. And we have those people amongst us. And in a lot of ways, there are some of those pursuits that are good for every one of us in various capacities. That there are things that we should learn. So we need people like Tommy. Like, read, read your books, Tommy. Read all those books, your 200 books, whatever you read, you know? We need that. We need people in our community that we do that. Ryan Polonio, you keep pontificating on thoughts people haven't even begun to thought are possible to think about. Like, we need those kind of intellectuals in our midst. And like, like those people in our community, Paul is an intellectual beast. And Luke does an intentional job of setting him up as the new Socrates in this passage. But I don't think it's his understanding, listen, I don't think it's his understanding of the Athenian philosophy that allows Paul to go not just into Athens, but anywhere and share the gospel of Jesus in a way that is relevant to people who listen. Paul's advantage is that he understands the gospel. Paul's advantage is that he is what Jeff Vanderstelt calls gospel fluent. Gospel fluent. Fluent. Gospel fluency is the ability for a person to speak the truths of Jesus in the everyday stuff of life. I'm going to say that again. Gospel fluency is the ability for a person to speak the truths of Jesus in the everyday stuff of life. The gospel isn't just about the death and resurrection of Jesus. Do you know that? It isn't. The gospel is the good news of the kingdom of God and the truth about its king. The gospel is not just good for your salvation but for your sanctification, your transformation, and it's the good news that will keep you until the end. The world around us needs to hear the whole gospel. Our families, communities, neighborhoods, workplaces all need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And we are the people that will speak that good news to them. We just have to become fluent in the language. I mean, has anyone learned a new language? Anyone ever learned a new language that's not their own language? I know there's a lot of us in here. Yeah, a lot of us. Anyone who's learned a new language knows that you start by learning some basic words, some basic ideas, and over time you learn more and more. But the best way to learn a language is to immerse yourself in that language. 
And if you can do that, if you can find a way to immerse yourself in the language, eventually you won't just learn the words of that new language. You begin to think and process and see the world through that new language. It becomes a part of who you are. And like any new language, the gospel is no different. We learn the gospel when we are first saved and we respond to that gospel, but we must keep learning. We must immerse ourselves with the language of the gospel until we don't just know the words but the good news of the kingdom of God permeates our thoughts and becomes the lens in which we see everything around us. That is gospel fluency. So how do we become gospel fluent? How do we become like Paul in this passage, able to speak the truth of Jesus to these people? Uh, Jeff Vanderstelt in his book, Gospel Fluency, uh, starts out by saying that we are all unbelievers. Listen to this. We are all unbelievers. Christians tend to think in terms of believers and unbelievers, but it's a false dichotomy. There are people who have been atoned for and saved and people who have yet to experience the grace and gift of Jesus. Yes, but if belief is about how we live, we don't believe all the truths of the gospel. The work of our sanctification is to believe more and more all the truths about who God is and not just how, how it affects us and ourselves, but the world around us. We grow in gospel fluency by learning how to overcome disbelief in both ourselves and the non-Christian world. The book that, that Jeff writes, which I highly recommend, it's called Gospel Fluency. Uh, it is a fantastic book. Um, and he gives so many ways to grow in gospel fluency, how to deal with unbelief. But I'm going to give us one tool to engage in our own unbelief and to engage in the unbelief of a non-Christian is that cool? Can I get real practical with this? Yeah? yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes, please give me something. One of the most powerful yet simple ways to deal with unbelief in ourselves is to reflect on why the gospel is good news to you. Why the gospel is good news to you. Remember that near-death experience. What did Jesus save you from? What is it about that experience that is actually good news to you in your life? Not just your life before, but your life right now. And whenever you can answer why the gospel is good news to you, talk about it. Talk about it with your words, not just your thoughts or watching sermons, but talk with your mouth about the gospel. Tell, tell your wife, your husband, your friends, your kids, your microchurches, talk about it. And not just how the gospel was good news to you, but how the gospel is good news to you right now in your life now. The uh, Central House House Church. Where are my Central House people? We got Central House people around here? Yeah, yeah. Woo, woo. We did an exercise a few weeks ago where we, um, we decided not to do like a Bible study or anything. We just went around the table and we just shared our stories. Everyone just shared their story. And you can tell that as we run around the table that the stories from the past were still fresh in the hearts of so many of us. There were tears. There were laughter. And there was a joint acknowledgement that Jesus is good. Not was good, is good. Talking about the ways we see the truths of Jesus at work in our everyday lives with people close to us not only deepens our connection with each other, but it grows our understanding of how we see and believe in Jesus. There are so many, listen, this, I feel like this is my life when I make this statement. There are so many moments in our lives that are not marked by joy Peace, love, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And our ability to talk about how the gospel is good news in those personal situations is crucial to us being able to identify how the gospel is good news to a dying world around us. 
When I'm in a disagreement with Allison that I want to win so badly. Allison is my wife, by the way. I know no other married couple has arguments like this, but for some reason it's me. I just want to win. Can I remember that God sees me, that God loves me, and validates everything about who I am and the way he made me, and I don't need to fight for my pride, that Jesus is my pride, and that's enough. When I'm frustrated at a house project that isn't going the way I want or I've lost control of it, can I remember the grace of God for me and that Jesus is my perfection, that I don't have to control everything? My ability to produce doesn't dictate the way God sees me. When those truths are a part of my language and my vocabulary, I can speak them over the way death wants to reign in my life and in turn speak it to others. A simple way to deal with unbelief in ourselves is to speak the truths of Jesus. I'm going to invite the worship team up. A simple tool, the second thing, a simple tool to deal with unbelief in non-Christians or the world around us. This is important. Listen. Listen. In Jesus' ministry, like with the woman at the well, you see him slow down, draw out the heart, and listen. Vanderstelt says that often we are giving answers to questions that people are not asking us, or cramming information into hearts that are longing for love, not just facts. We fail to listen. We fail to draw out the heart. And we miss opportunities to really love people and share the love of God with them. The next time a non-Christian gives you that snide comment about how religion is the worst and how the Bible isn't true, stop defending and don't try. Jesus can defend himself. You know that, right? Just ask questions. Why do you feel that way? What is it about religion that bothers you so much? The next time your coworker tells you a hard situation that happened in their life or is happening in their life, let them speak. Let them speak. Resist the temptation to give a Sunday school answer about God is there and he loves them. But stop and ask the Spirit to reveal to you the way the person needs good news in that moment. There is always something deeper a person needs from Jesus. And we will never discover how to speak the needed truth if we don't listen. These are, these are just two simple practices we can do. And there's so much more to learn on how to practice our gospel fluency. But guys, our gospel fluency, our ability to speak the truths of Jesus in a personal, authentic, and relevant way to a dying world is often one of the only things that stands in the way of us acting on the divine distress that God himself places in our hearts. And Paul was a smart dude. And honestly, we could have, and I maybe initially would have loved to do this, spend the whole time breaking apart the nuances of his arguments to the Athenian people. But we don't need Paul's intellect to reach a hurting world. We need the fullness of the gospel and an ability to communicate and connect its truths, not just with ourselves, in a deep and profound way, but with others. Derek, Derek has an impact on that channel side community. Not because he's smart, because he knows a lot about scripture. 
or knows a lot about apologetics. It can have all these dialogues with people that come in and out of that bar. But because he lives a Jesus life, he listens and he speaks truths that people actually need to hear. Divine distress is what causes us to act. And gospel fluency is what informs us how. So what do you need this morning? Maybe you're like me. Uh, you need God to breathe something new in you. You need him to breathe and remind you of that thing that you first loved. The ways that you were once bound by death and he swooped in and rescued you. I need that. I need to remember that every day. And I need him to breathe that truth. To give me once again distress for a hurting world. I need that so bad. And maybe you're like that this morning. You need God to breathe in you in a new way. To remind you of that near-death experience. And maybe you felt this burning. You felt this distress for a long time to engage in a people far from God. But you just don't know how. You don't know what to do. And maybe you feel ill-equipped or unsure. Maybe you need some growth in your gospel fluency. And I, I think to a degree, we all need both in various ways. Before Lucas comes up to lead us in communion, I want to take, I'm going to let the worship team play. I want to take some time for us to just reflect, to ask God, what, what is it that I need, right? What are you putting your finger on? Are there ways that I have not been distressed. Have I been missing this divine distress? Maybe I do get distressed over lots of things, but nothing that comes from the heart of God. Am I missing that? Am I overwhelmed by the burden of the world, but I don't know how to engage? God, how do I start? I want to give you just a couple minutes to reflect on what it is that God is putting his finger on for you. And then in a couple minutes, I'm going to bring us out of that. And then I want us to just share that with some people around us. Share what it is that God is putting his finger on. And then just, you can, just quick, it doesn't have to be crazy and elaborate. Just quick prayers. Pray over each other for God to have his way in us. Can we do that? We just spend a little time in prayer with each other. So I'm going to give you some time. And I'm going to bring you out of that in just two or three minutes. Just ask God, what are you putting your finger on? God, would you speak to us right now? Would you reveal yourself to us and reveal ourselves, the ways that we have maybe been hiding or things that we don't see?